Welcome to the Women's Leadership Network podcast series. This series was created as a means to encourage, inspire, and empower women who want to make their lives better. If you really passionately follow the things that, you know, set you on fire, whatever that is for you, figuring that out and going to do that, that's going to make work feel like, you know, you do it for free. We look for current issues and challenges facing women in the legal world and offer ways of tackling these issues, as well as provide a community of support and engagement. I'm Jeannie Forrest for the Women's Leadership Network. Our guest today is Lisa Boykin, a 1995 graduate of NYU Law and Senior Vice President of Business and Legal Affairs at Annapurna Pictures. I am so tickled to have you here, Lisa, visiting us from Southern California. We've had a shift in weather, so a little bit of a contrast here to discuss among other topics how to break into entertainment law but we're gonna like squeeze in some other topics while you're at it so welcome thank you very much it is my joy to be here today and and actually on the weather front I'm glad that it's a little overcast and dreary it gives me an opportunity to trot out all my black because in Los Angeles my friends are always telling me hey you're not in New York anymore stop wearing black yeah there you go <laughs> see now you now you fit right in with your you know I'm right at home village chic. That's right. This podcast is oriented, as you know, around women. So the first question that we always ask is about your experience as a law student and as a young professional, first of all, as a woman. You know, I was reflecting on that because I, you know, I went to the University of Notre Dame undergrad, and at the time that I was there, the school had only been co-ed for maybe about a decade. I got there in the fall of 84, and I had been used to being a racial minority, but I had never been in an environment where I was a minority as a woman. And at the time, Notre Dame was maybe 30% women, something like that. And so walking into my first class, it was, you know, 25 white guys and me. And I thought, you know, how did this happen? And I think that experience probably really prepared me for going on into the legal profession. Mm -hmm. You know, at NYU, I had the opposite experience, which was that the school was so diverse and there were so many women that you tended to forget that when you get out into the real world, you're going to experience something very different in terms of the number of women partners at a law firm and what impact, you know, that has in terms of seeing role models and having people, you know, to support you in your career in the places that you work. So I think my, my experiences at NYU were phenomenal. I had some of the most extraordinary professors, really enjoyed the students and the life here. And very few people say they loved law school. Uh, but I really did have a great experience here. And I did not feel that as a woman in some way that there were any limitations placed on me. And I think it's because of the foundation that I received here at NYU Law. And I still don't believe there are any limitations, but I do think that there are obstacles and, and hurdles that as women we have to overcome uh, in our professional and personal lives, juggling everything uh, out there in the real world. Lisa, talk about your first year of law school, because I know you had a phenomenal experience in law school. I had a phenomenal experience, but I can also very distinctly recall how difficult it was my first year. I had an absolute crisis of confidence. I thought, oh my God, I'm... I'm gonna flunk out. I, how am I gonna? Am I gonna get a job? What am I gonna do? What's gonna happen? I mean, I really worried my first year. I had a lot of anxiety, and and I realized other people did too, especially other women. Mm -hmm. um, it's not as if I didn't come in with the same credentials and qualifications as everybody else. 
but it was a really tough environment and it made me really question whether or not I was going to be able to make it and, and thrive. Come, and you had come from Notre Dame and a really successful exactly. academic life. And, it, and it's not as if I, I, I it, there's a difference between surviving and thriving. Mm-hmm. And, and I just want to say to one else uh, and to the young women out there that, you know, this is, it's a tough road. Being in law school, it does make you question everything about your abilities. Even you just could be the mo- everybody who is at NYU is smart and capable, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Extraordinarily <laughs> accomplished. But it is some. It's an experience that can really be a knock on your self confidence. And I think that we also too look at women who have achieved success in their professional careers. And we think they're perfect. They never doubted themselves. They never had a crisis of consciousness. They never wondered whether they would be successful or if they would do well, you know. Um, but yet, you know, I'm here to tell you that virtually every woman that I've talked to, and I do think this is a difference between men and women, that I, you see this so often. Men may not even come to the t- some men may not even come to the table with half the qualifications and smarts that women do. Hmm. Um, but yet, they have confidence in their abilities. They don't doubt that they're going to be able to succeed. And I think that this is something that as women, we're just so hard on ourselves routinely in all aspects of our lives. We're always criticizing. And maybe that's the culture and the society that we live in that's always so hypercritical of women. And we start to internalize that, whether it's our feelings about our bodies or our looks or smarts or whatever. But we're always criticizing ourselves. And we may project confidence to the outside world, but that inner voice is inside our head telling us, you know, that we're, we're not enough, we're not worthy, we're not going to be successful. It's that, that inner voice that you just got to step on and squash and kill. And if the world doesn't tell you that you're good enough and you're smart enough and you're going <laughs> to make it, then you have to talk to yourself and remind yourself that you would not be here at NYU Law School if you weren't an extraordinary individual. Thank you for for saying that, by the way, because I think that is exactly right. Sometimes you're a great example. I see you as like this powerful, successful entertainment lawyer out there kicking butt in the field. And you would be a great example of somebody who might be intimidating. And so it's a great thing to know that you also had a 1L experience where your confidence was bulldozed. I think it's inevitable um, in so many ways when you just look how fiercely competitive a law school environment is that, of course, it's going to, you know, be intimidating. Um, and I, But I also think, too, it's not just, you know, first year, second year, the pressure of getting a job yeah. that also can be, you know, a knock on confidence because you're going to experience rejection and that's going to feel like failure. And then that's going to make you question everything about your abilities. But, you know, failure is inevitable. That's going to happen. But the good news is that failure is the best teacher. And if you never fail, that means you haven't been trying to do very much in your life. So I think we have to, you know, condition ourselves to um, not be afraid of failure, at least try to, to summon all of our courage to, to work through it and to take chances. Because if, if you don't, you know, if you don't play big, you won't win big. And so we shouldn't, you know, shrink away. Um, and we should not 
think somehow that we're not good enough. I think that that's a universal thing, and I don't think that's just uh, relegated to our first-year law school experience. That's a lesson that throughout our lives we have to remind ourselves, like, I am worthy, I am good enough, and I see people out here who've accomplished great things, and they probably are still staring in the mirror thinking, like, am I good enough? Can I do this? Yes, you can. Mm -hmm. Amen, sister. (laughs) I like to think that at the law school that we have some sort of a safe haven, but then you do go out into what we say, the real world. It's not the law school isn't the real world, but as a young professional, what was that like? Well, you know, I started my career off at at, uh, Millbank Tweed Hadley & McCloy, which Mm -hmm. has been an extraordinary law firm. And I don't think that Millbank is any different than, you know, some any of the other big uh, law firms. At that time, back in 1995, you know, there were only a handful of women partners, and I I was in an office where there weren't there weren't any. I was in the Washington D.C. office, and again, Millbank no different than any of the other big firms, and you know, just in terms of being able to have a mentor, have see other women who are succeeding in those roles. You wondered, at least I did then and still do now, how it could be that, you know, half the entering class at a law firm is female, but then fast forward 10 years and... Where did they all go? Where did they all go? (laughs) And I don't know that we'll be able to answer that question in this podcast, but uh, so many things that factor into that. It's It's a tough environment for men and for women, but I think particularly for women because you're competing with, you know, wanting to get married and have a family and just the way the the professional working world is structured mm-hmm. it doesn't really it's not very forgiving for women getting off of the merry-go-round to go tend to their families or personal lives and then re-entering the workforce mm-hmm. and, and that I think that's across all professions but particularly you know in the legal profession it's, it's very the challenging back. it's the coming back that's mm-hmm. hard getting off the partnership track it's not at all that women aren't completely capable uh, to to be partners at law firms, but it's just the time period in our lives I think that that makes it more challenging, and I think that just that causes the the attrition for women at law firms. Mm-hmm. There's been a lot of speculation. There's a lot of ink spilled about why that is. Go back a little bit. Um, I know I think of you as a real Derek Bell disciple, really. I mean, you were really privileged. I know I was privileged to know him. You were privileged to have the experience of him as not only a teacher and as a mentor. He must have influenced your life as a student. Well, you know, I had the pleasure of meeting Derek Bell when I was a senior at Notre Dame. He came to speak at a civil rights conference that was organized by the late Father Ted Hesburgh, the longtime president of Notre Dame. And I didn't realize it went back that yeah, far. Yeah, it went back that far. Wow. I was uh, 19 or 20 years old, and we were seated together at this at this conference. And I talked to him about my goals and aspirations. And you know, by the end of the lunch, he was, "You got to go to law school." You know, wow. and at the time, he was at Harvard, and I had plans for after graduation. I, I went on to uh, live in France for two years, and I did a master's uh, program over there. And by the time I came back to the States and thought about law school, he was at NYU. So, of course, I just wanted to follow Derek wherever he was because I just thought he was one of the most extraordinary human beings I've ever met. I just I just counted a blessing that um, I had him in my life for so many years to guide me and to teach me and to, you know, really, div- I, I think he's just the, one of those people who had so much integrity, just 
he taught me, if I had to sum up, you know, one of the most important lessons that I learned from him, that if you stand up for what you believe is right, you're affirming yourself, you're Mm -hmm. building your self-confidence, you're being true to who you are, and in so doing, you also have the power to be able to change other people, to change institutions, to change circumstances. And that's certainly what he did in his career during his time, you know, working at the NAACP Legal Defense Fund with people like Judge Robert L. Carter and Thurgood Marshall and Judge Constance Baker Motley, you know, my heroes uh, in the law. Uh, they, Derek worked on, I think, over 300 school desegregation cases and just exhibited so much courage and passion for justice and equality. And I think that that's really what he instilled in all of his students, that desire to do good, to make a difference in our in our personal and professional lives, and to have a sense of ethical ambition, which of course he wrote a book mm-hmm. about that. And that certainly inspired my career, mm-hmm. that I want to be successful, but I also always want to th- give back and um, while I wanted to initially go to law school because I was interested in becoming a civil rights lawyer, and here I am an entertainment lawyer, uh-huh. I still feel that with my career, I've been able to you know, do things outside of work that exemplify the lessons that I learned from Derek Bell. That so helped me answer the question, what drew you to the legal profession in the first place? I didn't realize that Derek was influential even before you went to law school. Oh, absolutely. I would not have gone to NYU. I would not be a lawyer had I not met Derek Bell. So I know wherever I go in my life that uh, I'm the better for having known him. Wow. So he's been a giant force in your life for good. Yeah, absolutely. I think about, um, you know, the the things that have been helpful to me in my career. And I thought about, you know, role models, mentors, and sponsors. And understanding the difference that each one of those uh, categories of people play in your professional development and in your personal development I was lucky to have all three of those in one person, Mm -hmm. (laughs) but you know, your role models, the people you look up to, you want to emulate, you know, your, your mentors, people who teach you, and then your sponsors, the people who have such an unshakable belief in your abilities that they're willing to vouch for you, they're willing to hire you, or to write a letter of recommendation for you, or pick up a phone call and make a job happen for you. And... I really encourage our listeners to seek those people out uh, in their careers and in their personal lives, you know, to have someone there to guide you uh, in your development, to let you know which path to take and give you advice along the way. That certainly has been instrumental in my my career. And I think of the other people who I've met along the way. I, I've often joked that I feel like the Forrest Gump of the <laughs> legal profession because so many of the, the opportunities that I've had have been a result of just luck and happenstance. You know, meeting somebody who gives you a piece of advice or who opens a door for you and then they disappear out of your life and you realize that that person came into your life in that in that particular moment just to be able to open that door. Um, when I was here at NYU, back to how I broke into the entertainment field and there's no clear-cut path. It's sometimes a long and winding road. We call that planned serendipity. Exactly. And I think that that's what's so frustrating for people who want to do entertainment is that there's no set path. But when I was a first-year law student here at NYU, Spike Lee had a book signing over at the bookstore. I went to it. And I don't know why I thought I should ask Spike Lee, you know, I want to be an entertainment lawyer. What should I do? Like, why did I think he would know the answer to that? But on the spot, he gave me the telephone number of his lawyer, Lisa Davis, who graduated from NYU 
BYU Law School, and she had just made partner at a at a law firm. Lisa, I didn't know this. Are you serious? Yes, this is exactly how it happened. And so I called her, and she said, you know, Spike's always giving out my phone number. <laughs> so, but she very graciously agreed to meet with me, and, you know, I think it was, you know, probably October of my first year. So it's not as if I met her right at the end of law school. What should I do? She said, okay, so what, you're one month into this and you want to be an entertainment lawyer? You know, how about graduate from law school first, you know, do well. And then she told me, you know, go work at a law firm and from there, you know, find your way. And so that's exactly what I did. I went to a law firm And one thing I can say about this, this isn't, you know, the way that everybody has to take, but I have noticed that the gatekeepers in the entertainment industry, lawyers who have senior roles and who are hiring people, they all worked at law firms. So, of course, they think that that's the qualification that you need in order to get in. Yes, all advice is always autobiographical, Exactly. That's absolutely right. So, worked at a law firm, and then my first break came about four years in. I got a job at the national headquarters of PBS and uh, worked there for a few years and then did a deal to license Schindler's List from a guy named Tom Wertheimer, who I always say is my fairy godfather in Hollywood. And he uh, was at NBC Universal. And I remember negotiating the deal with him, and I was so green and scared. And, you know, he's a very senior guy. And he would say things like, let me check with Spielberg on that and come back to you. And I was so intimidated. But the deal worked out, and a few months later, he came to town. His daughter lived in Washington, D.C., which is where I started off after NYU, and uh, took me to lunch and said, hey, what do you want to do with your career? And I said, well, you know, I've always wanted to move to Hollywood and work in the entertainment industry. And he said, send me your resume, and I did. And next thing you know, like within a week, I had an interview at ABC with somebody who I did not realize at the time was a very senior individual at ABC. I went to that interview, and I'm sure I had no clue what I was talking about because I just didn't know. I, had, I think that might have been my second time in Los Angeles. So as it turns out, I did not get that job, and that was a disappointment. But one of the things I've certainly learned along the way that the key, one of the keys to success is resilience. And while I was in Los Angeles, I'd set up some informational interviews um, based on referrals that I'd gotten from an, uh, a young female lawyer I'd met who worked at Paramount Pictures, who I'm still very good friends with t- to this day. And uh, turns out a job opened up and I got an offer at Paramount and that's how I moved to Hollywood and started my career in entertainment. So ironically that I was devastated I didn't get the job at ABC. You know, I thought it was a failure. What I do wrong? I was, you know, dissecting every element of the right. interview. The great irony is that hmm, some 10 years later, I got a job at ABC Disney. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is, looking back on it, uh, I, I just chuckle every time I think about it, because sometimes when we don't get the things that we want in mm-hmm. the time frame that we think we ought to get them, we think that we're a failure. And maybe God is saying, you know, not no, but just not now. I call those the listen, honey moments. Exactly. It's like, listen, honey, it might not be now, but it might be later. It is planned serendipity. Yes. Um, so listen, honey, it might be that this one's not going to work out and this, this door is going to close. But this, And I saw you in Paramount when you were in Paramount, and you were a pretty green lawyer then. Absolutely. Um, and feeling a little <laughs> bit over your head. And I um, think that, that you know, one thing that I've definitely learned in my legal career and... and um, 
I, I would want to pass this advice on is that it's okay not to know something. Exactly. You don't have to sit and pretend as if you know everything. In fact, people respect you more if somebody asks you a question and you say, you know, I, I uh, let, I'm, let me, let me come back to you on that. And then you so come back game. with the answer as opposed to making up something on the spot that might end up being wrong. And what's that expression? Better to remain silent and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and, and remove, remove all doubt. doubt. Exactly. <laughs> well, so the, the best guidance, because we do get a lot of questions about breaking into the entertainment law field. It sounds like the best guidance is just this, is show up and do a good job. And yes. be patient with the listen, honey moments. And I also think, too, seeking out uh, people who are in the profession, not that you're seeking them out to ask them for a job, but maybe you reach out to somebody and say, hey, can I grab a cup of coffee with you? Can I stop by? Always easier in Hollywood to get a coffee date than lunch, FYI. <laughs> really? Because, <laughs> it's hard to break away for lunch, but people can always find 30 minutes if you can stop by their office to do an informational interview. So you're not asking them for anything. Mm-hmm. You're just wanting to pick their brain, talk about, you know, tell me about your story. How did you break into entertainment? And you let them get to know who you are and you establish contacts and you let them know, hey, look, I'm looking for a job in the field. If something comes up, you know, please keep me in mind. That's how it happens is that somebody has a relationship with you. They hear about a job. They pass on your resume. They put your name in the hat. You may not get that job, but maybe it opens up an opportunity down the line for something else. So I think there's real value in networking, meeting people, but not asking them for something per se, but just, you know, reaching out to establish connection. Being seen, speaking up. Absolutely. And then all all along the way, you know, preparing yourself. And as it turns out, you know, working at a law firm for for some um, minimum number of years, if it's really not what you wanted to, I think is good preparation because most companies uh, don't hire people directly out of law school. That's not just entertainment. That's any in-house opportunity. It's really very rare that you see somebody go from law school straight to an in-house role. Uh, usually you, you have to pass some time at a law firm. Listen, and I'm going to forever hold my picture of you <laughs> asking Spike Lee uh, that infamous question. I want to be an entertainment lawyer. And, and you know how that even came full circle? When I worked at PBS, One of the another deal that I did was uh, Spike directed the UEP Newton story, <laughs> and I ended up working on that deal. And I remember going to um, some press conference, and Spike was there. Now, of course, he's not going to remember me. It was probably like 10 years had passed at this point. Maybe not that many good seven at least uh-huh. seven or eight and I went up to him and I said hey Spike I don't know if you remember I met you at NYU and now look I did your deal and he just looked at me very stoically that's nice you know <laughs> there was like, but for me it was a full circle moment and sure. I, I, I really relished and I was very proud of that project and proud that I had the opportunity um to work on that. And then when I got to Hollywood at Paramount Pictures, one of the first things I did was send a letter to Lisa Davis to tell her that I'd made it to Hollywood and to thank her for all of her advice. And I I routinely see her at events around New York. She does a lot of CLEs. She's an extraordinary person also. And so it's funny how the world is so small and we're all interconnected in so many ways. Yeah, and um, thank her for reaching back and absolutely. having that. Yeah, she did that for me. And and, and so I think to, to sum up on the breaking in part, um, you know, the failure is inevitable. Like you're going to try out for things. You're not going to get it. It's okay. Failure, resilience, persistence, wash, rinse, repeat. 
failure, (laughs) (laughs) resilience, persistence. And I think that that's good advice for life in general, not just in how to break into the entertainment field. And also the value of networking um, and just keeping an eye out. Sometimes you have to move. You know, it's uh, you you can't soar if you don't jump. So hanging out in Washington, D.C., there were some opportunities that were there. But if if what I really wanted to do was to work at a big studio, then I needed to move out to Los Angeles. So I did that. And uh, and I've been there for 15 years now. And I most recently joined Annapurna Pictures after having been at Disney uh, prior to this. And that's been an extraordinary opportunity. We're uh, launching a television division. And I'm very proud to be able to get in on the ground floor and work with some extraordinary executives who are helping to, to create that division. Sue Speaking Nagel, of soaring. my boss, Chris Karabi, it's just been a great, great experience. I'm really glad that I, I made the move, although I miss the mouse house, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can miss that. I have to ask you a question because you're in entertainment, the entertainment world and you've been in Hollywood there's been some scorching news lately in this world, um, especially when we're talking about women. Talk a little bit, if you will, about sexual harassment and if you've seen any hurdles, if you've experienced any hurdles in this area. We, I feel like in law school, we talk about contracts and we talk about torts and we talk about legal issues, but we don't train our women about how to deal with some of these trickier issues in the profession. I've kept my mouth shut, I know, myself, and I've talked to a lot of women lawyers who've kept their mouth shut. And now women are speaking up, and I kind of love it. And it kind of breaks my heart that there's things that have to be spoken up about. So can you are you willing to yes, talk about this? Yes, absolutely. You know, I, I really think we're witnessing a watershed moment when it comes to these issues of sexual harassment in the workplace. And I think what's been so jarring for everyone, men and women, <laughs> is how it has impacted virtually every woman's life. It has. I mean, you're, you just, I, I never could have imagined that so many, it's like the majority of women have at some point or another experienced some form of sexual harassment, whether in the workplace, in law school, in in their personal lives. I mean, it's just, it's overwhelming, the stories. And I think now that people feel empowered to come forward and to share these very painful stories. And, you know, I can speak, you know, to my own personal experiences. When I worked at Paramount Pictures, there was this, um, older man who, you know, I was in my 30s at the time, he was in his 80s. And he was a legendary producer at Paramount. I I won't uh, say his name, although he has since passed away. And, you know, he would come up to me and say the most wildly inappropriate things. Mm -hmm. And I I mean, and there's no innuendo. I mean, it was very direct that he was propositioning me. Now, he was not my boss. Mm-hmm. And so in my mind, when I did the analysis, I thought, well, this guy has no impact on my career because I'm not directly working for him. And while I don't appreciate the lewd comments and the things that he said to me, I thought, you know, would I be selling my reputation, damaging my prospects in the field if I were to say something to complain about him? And so I just decided, okay, well, I'm not going to say anything. I'm just going to avoid him because I don't have to work with him. Right. Um, of course, that did not stop him from coming up to me, especially when I was with other people, um, because then I couldn't avoid him. And I couldn't say something without revealing to the people who were with me, you know, why I was uncomfortable being around him. 
And, you know, I'm sad to say that I did not speak up at the time. And now I look back on it and I think that this is why and how these situations persist. And I really feel as if I've I've learned the lesson that um, you know Alice Walker's famous quote: "The most common way people give up their power is by thinking they don't have any." Mm-hmm. And sometimes, you know, you may feel as if speaking up and speaking out about something, in some way, it's going to hurt you. But I think when you speak your truth, and again, back to Derek's lessons, that it affirms who you are, it affirms your truth, no matter what the outcome is, you feel validated that you were true to yourself. And sometimes speaking up does have its consequences. I mean, it could be that, you know, we were hearing all these different stories from women speaking out where it, you know, it sometimes it may damage, you know, your career, but at least you're being your authentic self. Because what's the point of having a career if you don't feel in your heart that you're being true to who you are? And so I, I agree that in law school, we, we don't equip women to deal with sexual harassment. Um, and I don't know that we'll solve it all here in, in our conversation, but I just want to encourage people to speak up and to not be silent and to not think you don't have any power. And again, this is a watershed moment. I think things are are changing in our society when it comes to this issue. There, there is no shame. Viola Davis said something uh, the other week in the wake of all of these scandals in Hollywood, and she said, "You know, the predator wants your silence mm. because you know it feeds their sense of power and entitlement." And so, you know, don't be silent. Speak up. There is no shame, and we should not feel ashamed for encountering these experiences. And I think it's good for this conversation to be ongoing in uh, in law schools across the country because it is something that, you know, sadly, even though things are changing, uh, that, that most women are going to experience. That's really incredibly valuable. I'm glad for your willingness to speak about this. I think it's a, I think it's a tricky topic for it sure. It is. It is. It's very tricky. But I think that that when we stay silent and ashamed, mm-hmm. then we we are giving up our power. And I don't think as women that we should ever feel as if we should have to do that under any circumstances. No career, no job, nothing is is more important than your feelings of self worth. And I think as women. We owe it to each other to be a network of support. And to speak truthfully about things and to, you know, be honest with one another. Uh, and I think that we all feel empowered yeah. as a result of, of speaking our truth. And that's something that I've gathered so much inspiration from listening to all the various women come forward. And I do hope that this is going to really fundamentally change our country, our society, the workplace environment, not just in Hollywood, but, you know, in in all professions across the board for women. I love that you say it's a watershed moment. I, I hope that that is, in fact, the case. I want to imagine that this is an inflection point for, for all of us. Absolutely, it is. I'd like to end these conversations with um, a couple of questions. When I think back, I was around, amazingly enough, for when you when you started law school. Think back to the beginning of when you started law school, your bold and brave self. What advice would you give your your little Lisa self back there, your Wenell self, inspired by Derek? I did not realize that. And what would that law student 
think of you now? Oh my God, so many things I have learned over the years, but and, and I'm always full of quotes because I, I get my inspiration from <laughs> from reading other people's quotes. And Derek uh, had a, had a quote. He always used to quote Dr. Howard Thurman, the great theologian who was one of Derek's mentors. And Dr. Thurman said, "Don't ask what the world needs. Ask what makes you come alive." And then go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Wow. And I love that quote because I think when I look back on uh, my years as a student, that I was always, you know, sort of following like, oh, should I, I should go work here. Or I should try out for this or I should apply for that. You know, I, I was following the crowd and doing things because I thought that would be the great you know, preparation for the next step. And what I've come to realize is that if you really passionately follow the things that, you know, set you on fire, whatever that is for you, figuring that out and going to do that, that's going to make work feel like, you know, you do it for free. It's not work. It's your passion. It brings you joy. It makes you feel fulfilled. And so I, I would just encourage people to figure that out for themselves. And um, hand in hand with that would be, you know, to believe in yourself. And that sounds so corny, people say that, but it takes a certain amount of confidence to be able to follow your passion and to have those rogue moments in your mm -hmm. personal and professional life where you may seem uh, by others' opinion to go off track, but you're following your own internal dictates and not the crowd. Resist the conveyor belt. That's exactly it. And I think there's so much pressure to conform. You know, it's a very conservative profession. People have expectations of what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to be and how you're supposed to dress and everything, even more so for women. And um, and I think it's just really important to, you know, believe in your own heart and your own mind and your own courage um, see, where did I learn that? The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> um, <laughs> very profound lesson there. Because if you know your own mind, your own heart, your own courage, then you're always home, right? Mm -hmm. No matter where you go. And so I think that that's, that's really the advice I'd give myself. And also not to worry. You know, fear and worry were my co-pilots, I think, in law school. <laughs> and probably still a little bit now. That's a great motive. Those are great motivators. But just sort of believing in yourself enough to follow the things that you really want to do. And, you know, it will lead you. It may be a long and winding road, but it'll lead you to where you want to be. And I also think that you'll be happier along the way. And uh, the other thing that I've learned in this journey is that, you know, being happy isn't about the absence of problems and having unshakable self-confidence isn't about being perfect. It's just about um, being resilient and being able to dust yourself off after disappointment and keep moving forward. And we were talking about, you know, what are some of the keys to success? And I would say uh, three things. Wabi-sabi. I'll mm -hmm. explain what that is. The importance of role models, mentors, and sponsors, which we talked about earlier. Yeah. And then resilience. And wabi-sabi is the Japanese art of respecting and appreciating the beauty and imperfection. Yeah. And I love, a good, very dear friend of mine um, in Los Angeles introduced me to that term. And I love it because we think in this society that exalts perfection, you know, that if, if we're not perfect, that somehow that's going to be an impediment to our success. And we're always, especially as women, you know, tearing ourselves apart and criticizing ourselves and finding fault. 
and we think that God is going to use us through our strength, but actually the portal to his power is through our weakness. Being vulnerable and and um, accepting your weaknesses and pressing forward, mm-hmm. notwithstanding these things that you know we think we do we don't have in our lives. You know, that really is the key to it. You can't love yourself and hate the experiences that define you. And so this quest, this unrealistic quest for perfection, be the perfect mom, the, the, the woman who can juggle home and family and job and career and marriage and all these things, that quest for perfection, that's what's killing us as women, I think. Wabi-sabi. Every time something doesn't go right or I see some perceived flaw, I think of that word and wabi-sabi. it really... <laughs> wabi-sabi. Leonard Cohen says in his great anthem, there's a crack in everything and that's how the light gets in. Oh, I love that quote and I think I've got that written down somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I click my ruby slippers in a nod to the Wizard of Oz, I will tell you that I had an opportunity several times to be in conversation with Derek at the end of his life, and every time your name came up, he softened, and he spoke of you with such profound love and warmth that it moved me, and you should know that. You're going to make me cry. (laughs) I miss him so much, Um, especially in the times that we're living in now. I I feel the urge so often to just, you know, what would what would Derek do? What would mm-hmm. Derek think about all of this? He was just an extraordinary person, and he touched the lives of so many people, not just here at NYU, but, you know, at Harvard Law School and across the country. I feel so privileged and blessed that I had him in my life. You know, he, he changed my life. I would not have gone to NYU Law School. I would not be a lawyer had it not been for Derek Bell. So many wonderful lessons that I learned from him, and um, and what a blessing it is to know his family. And you know, Janet Dort Bell is like my mother. I just adore that woman, and she is a force to be reckoned with. You know, she recently earned her PhD, mm-hmm. and I just think that's so remarkable. And of course, we're here to celebrate the 22nd annual Derek Bell that's Lecture, right. which coincides with uh, the year that I graduated from law school. So that's always how I remember how many years it's been. And I, I think this community, this NYU community is so special. And I feel so blessed to be a part of it. And I just want this next generation of women lawyers to go forward to have wildly successful careers, to not be so hard on yourselves, and uh, and not strive for perfection, but just strive to do uh, the best you can, and um, and to be happy. Thanks so much, Lisa. Thanks for doing this. Thank you. Thank you for having me. <laughs> All right. All right. For more information about the Women's Leadership Network at NYU School of Law. And to access more episodes in this series, please visit us online at law.nyu.edu slash women's leadership.